Welcome to the Encounter Christian Church Message Podcast, where we bring you the latest messages from our Sunday services. To find out more about Encounter or to plan your visit with us, you can find us online at www.encounter.cc. We hope you enjoyed this message. How good is it that this is the house that we get to call our home? Continuing the theme of God's house, our home, I want to build on something that Pastor Robbie introduced last week, and that's really the premise for the whole series and the title, and that is that this is a place where God dwells. God lives here. And actually, you might not know this, but that's why this church is called Encounter Christian Church, because we believe that God does live here, and we want every person who walks through the doors of this place to personally encounter the presence of God when they come here. But what I'm really interested in talking about today is something that's going to lay a challenge, I hope, to each one of us, because this is the house of God in the sense that he lives here, he owns this place, and he is the head of this family. But this is not the only place that God dwells. In fact, I've been a Christian for a really long time, and I've made it one of my life's pursuits to get good at hearing the voice of God in prayer, in reading the Bible, in worship. And most of the time, when I do hear the voice of God, I want you to know it usually feels just like a little nudge inside your spirit, something that gets stronger the more you listen to it. And the more you practice paying attention to that voice, the clearer it gets. Most of the time, it feels like just a still, quiet whisper that you find. You know, when we come together in services like this, I often will experience that nudging in worship. So the last thing I want is for anybody to walk away thinking that every time I talk about God speaking to me, I mean it's like thunder and lightning and the clouds open and the you know, choir of angels appears singing the hallelujah chorus. That's not what I mean. Most of the time, it's just a gentle nudging that actually takes us time to learn how to listen to. God's not hiding from us. It's just that we have a lot of voices screaming at us most of the time, asking for our attention, including our own. So it takes some time to learn to be still and hear the voice of God. So in saying all of that, I would love to tell you about a time in my life when I actually heard the audible voice of God screaming over a really loud situation that I found myself in. Is it okay if I start with a story today? So this is the story about the night that God saved my life. When I was still single, I was living and working up in Brisbane. I lived on the southeast side of Brisbane and I was visiting a friend who still lived near our uni campus on the northwest side of Brisbane. So I had to go on quite a long drive to get there. You have to cross through the city and cross two bridges over the river twice to get there. As I'm approaching the city, heading north, there's a part of the freeway there in Brisbane that is bordered by a part of like state forest called Tui Forest. And I don't know what it's like now, but at that time it was really notorious for housing a large population of feral cats. And so this particular night, I'm driving across the southeast freeway. It was about 5.30, so there's a bit of traffic about. The posted speed limit was 100 kilometres an hour, and that's how fast I was driving. When one of these... <laughs> I promise, Bill. Seriously. This is going to eat into my time, but I want you to know, 
I recently got my first ever speeding fine in 20 years of having my license. And you should all feel sorry for me because it was on a Sunday morning and I was driving to get here to open up the church for everybody else. <laughs> all right, back on track. So I'm driving at 100 kilometers, probably 99 even, but it was pretty fast. And this cat streaks out of the forest and crossed the road right in front of me. Now, I'm sure everybody in this room could tell you what you're supposed to do in a situation like that. And that's plow on through, forget the cat, keep driving. Guess what I didn't do, right? I did exactly what you should never do in a situation like that. And instinctively, before I even thought about it, I turned the wheel, I made a little adjustment, yes. I turned the wheel and I swerved to avoid hitting the cat. So, in traffic, on the freeway, three lanes of traffic, going 100 kilometres an hour, I turned the steering wheel all of a sudden, and from the outside, you would have seen my little 1990s Suzuki Swift hatchback go across three lanes of traffic. And I didn't stop until I got to the guardrail on the other side. And upon impact with that guardrail, I thought, gee, I better go back the other way. And so I crossed the three lanes of traffic again. The car completely spun out of control. I did a total 360 crossing these three lanes of traffic before I stopped on the side of the freeway. That's what you would have seen if you were on the freeway that night. But let me tell you what happened inside the car. The second I turned that wheel, I knew I had made a really big mistake, but I was completely frozen. I was terrified. In my head, I can remember having the thought, this is how I'm going to die. It was on my way back, my second trip, across the three lanes of traffic with the car spinning totally out of control that I thought I should pray. And I didn't know what to say. I didn't have any theological, biblical application for the situation what I was in. The only thing I could think to pray were these two words. Jesus, help! And can I tell you, he did. The second I said those words... I heard the voice of God and things were happening so fast. Everything was so blurry. I'm sorry I can't tell you what that voice sounded like now. It's lost in all the chaos. But I know the words he told me. And I heard a voice tell me, take your foot off the accelerator. Yes, this is the practical wisdom of the Holy Spirit. So when I heard that voice, I realised that I'd become so frozen in panic that I'd actually stiffened my leg like this and it was still pressing to the floor on the accelerator pedal. So it was on my second trip back around that I realised, okay, take your foot off the accelerator. It like broke me out of my panic and common sense returned and I remembered I should pump the brakes and that's when I was able to bring the car safely, miraculously, to a stop on the side of the road. When I crawled out of the car, there was a huge crowd gathered around all these other cars that I'd just nearly murdered and uh, had stopped. And the drivers had come out to see if I was okay. I guess they didn't know what they were going to find inside that car. And the first thing I said when I got out, I think, well, I know I was in shock, was, is the cat okay? right? Never mind, I just risked the lives of all these people. But then I said, did I hit any other cars? 
And can you believe I did not hit a single other car on the road? And I'm pretty sure the cat was okay. We didn't see a body anywhere. Um, all these onlookers insisted I go to hospital, even though I walked out of the car. And it seemed like a pretty good idea to me, so I did. And they kept me in there overnight, checking for signs of internal injuries because these sorts of things can emerge over time. The next day, they sent me home with a bottle of painkillers for the whiplash that they assured me would almost certainly hit the next day. Apparently, the, high, the faster you're going, the longer it can take for the symptoms of whiplash to come out. Not a minute of pain did I experience. Nothing. Not a bruise, not a scratch. <laughs> yeah, praise God, right? I wish I could say the same for my little Suzuki Swift. That was a write-off. There really wasn't much left of it. When I stepped out is when I realised, holy moly, that was a close call. Um, but that is the story of the night God saved my life. It's a pretty incredible one, isn't it? The audible voice of God in my Suzuki Swift. But why am I telling you that? Apart from the fact it's a fun story to tell. Here's why. If God just lived in the church, I wouldn't have heard him that night telling me to take my foot off the accelerator on the southeast freeway in Brisbane. God lives where we live. Now, I'm not a prophet. I'm not special. I'm not especially smart. I was dumb enough to swear for the cat that night. It's only because of the goodness of God that he goes where I go. And so today I want to share about hosting the presence of God. Because if he's with us, how do we host him well? Yes, here at Encounter Christian Church in this building amongst these people. But also how can we each personally host him well, host the very presence of God every single day. Whether you've been attending church your whole life like I have, or this is the first time you've ever sat in a meeting like this, you need to know this is not all there is. This is not all that God intended for us when it comes to living a Christ-filled life. So today I've entitled this message, Hosting the Presence of God. Let's pray before we get into the word. <clears throat> God, I invite you to come and anoint my words, that by your spirit revelation would enter this room this morning. I dedicate the next 20 minutes to your truth. Give me grace to do it justice, that each one of us might receive an impartation of your power today, your power to walk in freedom, to walk in strength, and to walk in closeness with you. Amen. It's a big concept, isn't it, for something to house God? for something to be a place where God can live. It's a really big idea. Maybe you're familiar with that idea and haven't stopped to think about it in a while, but I wonder if anyone recently been into a cathedral or a chapel or one of, you know, the, the big older style buildings, usually Catholic or Anglican churches. They're quite impressive, aren't they? Maybe some of you have been to the really famous ones in Europe. I never have, but even the ones around here can really inspire this sense of awe when you walk into them. There's something about the air in these places. You know, the ones with the stained glass windows, the vaulted ceilings, the gargoyles perched on the ledges. I don't know what that's about, but they do something to the atmosphere. That's for sure. There's something about the air in those places, isn't there? It's like a sense of grandeur that lends itself to the idea that that could be a place where God could live. Something as conceptually enormous as the creator of the universe surely deserves these towering, beautiful, intricate 
buildings. So when we walk into a church like this, that is amazing. This facility is incredible. But it's very familiar to us in the sense that we enter workplaces and businesses and even our homes on a daily basis that use similar building materials, similar furniture and textiles to what we see around this place. It's easy to think that perhaps we're missing some of the sense of awe that belongs to a place that houses God. And you know, our pastors look normal too, don't we? I hope we do. You know, we don't wear priestly robes or headdresses or carry many tokens that symbolise that the presence or power of God is with us. We just look normal. Are we missing the sense of awe that belongs to a place where God dwells? Or is there something else? I want us to understand that God does live in ordinary places. And actually, we were handcrafted by him to house the presence, the spirit of God. That's what makes us beautiful. You know, history, Christian history and world history, is divided into two parts, isn't it? We've got before Jesus and we've got after Jesus. Our whole calendar is set up that way. And in the Bible, it's the same way. The bits that came before Jesus are called the Old Testament. The scriptures that come after Jesus, we call the New Testament. It just means before and after Jesus. And in the Old Testament scriptures, the presence of God, the Spirit of God that I'm talking about this morning, was understood to live in a wooden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And this was a special artifact from the time when the Israelites were still wandering in the desert. When Moses went up the mountain and received the Ten Commandments, he chiseled them on two tablets of stone and then put them in this box. And that box was understood to house the presence of God in such a powerful way that if anyone even touched it, they would die. Not because they were judged or anything like that, but because it was so powerful, it was like being struck by lightning. You would immediately die. Later on, when the Israelites had established themselves as a nation, they built temples. And very similar concept was applied to the Spirit of God and where he could live, where he could dwell. The presence of God was understood to inhabit the um, inner sanctum of these temples or the Holy of Holies. There's a room within a room within a room that only a priest under really strict conditions would dare to enter. And even then, he would go in with a rope tied around his leg so that if he died, the other priests could pull him out without having to go in and die themselves. Such was the awe for the presence of God that dwelt within these places. But part of this big break in history that Jesus created, this radical shift that happened through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus was that he changed our understanding of where God could and should live. Part of what the new covenant established was that the presence of God couldn't and shouldn't be contained to a place anymore. And this is because Jesus' whole mission was to restore God's original design for us to dwell alongside God like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. So I'm a worship leader. That's what I do here at church in my staff capacity. I get to spend a lot of time thinking and praying for our team, for our Sunday services, about worship, all that sort of thing. And uh, one of the things I do is try and develop emerging leaders. So I was meeting with someone earlier this week. This is someone in our team. She's a really anointed worshipper, and she's learning how to worship lead. And one of the things we've been brainstorming about is our song choices. So the songs that we choose to lead on Sunday mornings when we come together. 
Because believe it or not, you guys, we do receive our fair share of feedback about the songs that we sing on Sundays. Um, so we are really conscious about the songs we lead, trying to balance people's preferences, our own abilities, different doctrines of worship, <clears throat> whether or not a song is easy to sing. There's a lot to consider, and we do consider carefully. So me and this girl, we were brainstorming around what works in our particular corner of the world. And I was able to say to her this week, and I want to say to all of you now, we shouldn't actually put too much pressure on these 20 minutes of worship that we have together on Sundays. We try our absolute best to provide the most inviting opportunity for our church to enter into worship as possible. But, you know, even if we get it absolutely perfect, like the lineup is Chris Tomlin, and he leads a, he reworks an old hymn so that the oldies and the young people are happy. And then Tasha Cobbs comes up and leads a gospel song and gets everyone dancing. And Brooke Fraser comes up and closes with Shout to the Lord and What a Beautiful Name. The band doesn't miss a beat. Everybody's into it. It's a perfect worship set followed by T.D. Jake's preaching for half an hour. You know, that's still not enough, right? The world's most perfect church service is not enough. Because 20 minutes of worship can't change your life. And it's not what Jesus died for. Jesus died so that God could live with us again. Don't misunderstand me. Coming together in God's house like this is beautiful. It's important and it's powerful. According to the Bible, us loving each other in a community like this is the most powerful witness to people who don't know Jesus yet. That, that exists. This is really important. But do you know we were never designed to be visitors to the presence of God? In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. This is the church that he started and then he went away to start other churches. He stayed in contact with them to give them advice about how to run their church in the way that Jesus had taught him. And he says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? So turn to your neighbor and say, your body is a temple. Some of you needed to hear that today. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Who is in you, whom you have received from God? Your body is a temple. Temples aren't irrelevant. The house of God isn't a dead concept, but it sure looks different than it did before Jesus came. Because you and me, we are the temples now. So do you know that you are a chapel? You are a cathedral? You are a church, whatever you want to call it. You're a house of God. And if you need reminding about this today, don't feel bad. It's okay, the church in Corinth did too. In the next letter that's recorded, Paul is writing to the church again and they still need reminding. And this time he phrases it this way. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? So why do we put this pressure on just 20 minutes? How can we visit someone who lives not just with us, but in us? 20 minutes or an hour on a Sunday, 
On a good week, let's be honest, we turn our attention to the presence of God. And we can enjoy the most amazing visits with God during these short minutes, but we can walk out the door and be absolutely no different than when we walked in. But there's not a person here who won't have a need for God's Holy Spirit in your life sometime between now and next Sunday. You know, we can change your Sunday, but only you can carry the presence of God into your Monday. Most of you know, if you know me, that I'm a pastor's kid. I was raised in the church. I was literally born at a youth camp that my parents were leading. So when I say I was born into the church, I really mean it. And I've attended church just about every Sunday of my whole life. I love the church. I'm so grateful for all I've learned and the people that I've met in meetings like this. The lights are really in agreement with me today, aren't they? They're loving that. Thunder and lightning. Thanks, Kathy. That's good. We'll, we'll go with that. So look, growing up in church, I have experienced some really incredible moments in worship gatherings. In fact, many of the times I've experienced and sensed that nudging of the Holy Spirit that I talked about earlier were in worship meetings just like this one. But there have been just as many moments where God has spoken to me powerfully when it's just me and Him. And that's life-changing. And He wants to do the same for you. I want to explain this. You know, Jesus actually established the model for what a life like this looks like. The reason that Jesus was able to pay the price for us, for our sin on the cross and to restore humanity into a family relationship with God is because he was fully human. He could stand in as humanity's champion, as a representative for us because he was fully human. But here's the really important part, and this is a central part of our Christian faith, is that the reason he could triumph over death is because he was fully God. He was both fully human and fully God. So he was perfect and victory was assured. He qualified as our substitute because he was fully human. He qualified for victory because he was fully God. And some of us don't realise that Jesus is the name that was given to Jesus when he was born, to the child by Mary. Yes, an angel revealed it to her that she should call him Jesus, but it's just a regular name. It's become special because of who Jesus became. But Jesus as a name is just like Joshua is to us. It's a lovely name, Joshua's out there, but it's just a name. And do you know that Christ is not his surname? I'm not making fun of anyone who thinks that because we hear Jesus Christ together. It makes sense that you would. But when Jesus fills out his census forms, it's not first name Jesus, last name Christ. Christ is actually a title that was given to him. It means anointed one. And it's a word that people attach to his name because they were recognizing this is a man, Jesus, but the man name's not enough because there's something else living in him. It's the presence of God. And that's the Christ. And do you know that if you've accepted the gift of Jesus' sacrifice for your sins and you've entered into a relationship with God, that you are invited into that Christ-filled life as well? We are invited to live as Jesus lived. Jesus' plan for restoration didn't end at the cross. He said, it is finished, right? Here's why I believe it was finished. Because the work of Jesus, the man, was done when he surrendered his last breath. But the Spirit of Christ still had work to do. 
He went on a three-day rampage, went down to hell, stomped on the devil's head, gave him his eviction notice, stole the keys to hell, then came back and resurrected the body of Jesus and went and told the disciples about what was to come. That's the spirit of Christ still at work. Here's what he told the disciples when he was resurrected. He told them he would ascend to the Father. That is, Jesus would return to heaven. But don't despair, because something even better is on its way. Someone even better is coming next. This is what he said in John 14, it's recorded. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I believe Jesus was saying, I showed you how to live, but the one who is coming is going to give you the power to do it. It's the very presence of God coming to earth to live not in a box or a room or a temple or just one man, but in every person who would accept this invitation to a Christ life. Have you ever wondered why we call ourselves Christians, not Christians or Jesusians? It's because we're already human. We don't need the Jesus name. We need to become Christians, filled with the Spirit of Christ, just like Jesus showed us. But I wonder if we can look at a familiar building like this one and it fails to inspire a sense of awe as a house where God lives. How much more when we look at ourselves do we begin to question? Could I really be a place where God can live? Could I really be a host for the Holy Spirit? I'm not very holy. But Jesus doesn't disqualify us. He qualified us. He removed that judgment from your life. Only you are getting in the way when it comes to hosting the Holy Spirit in your everyday life. Because aren't we all looking for something powerful when we talk about spirituality? We really need help to get through what we're facing. We really need some source of peace and confidence and power to overcome. We need a reserve of inner strength to draw from, to keep fighting. Here's what Paul, who I talked about earlier, he's writing to a different church now. He's talking to the Ephesians and he has this to say about this type of Christ-filled life. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God." That's the type of life you can expect to live when you understand that God's Spirit lives in you. Christ dwells in your heart through faith, not through perfection. This is the type of strength and power through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that Jesus intended for us, his followers, to have. So why don't we have it? I think there's probably lots of reasons. 
But I tell you the one I see the most when I'm talking to other Christians and in my own life too. We think our lives aren't worthy. My life's too messy. I'm depressed. I'm addicted. So many broken relationships in my life. I'm still under construction, so God can't come and live with me yet. I still see so many Christians who are just visitors to the presence of God. So we need to work out how to move from visitation to cohabitation. You know, as a family, Glenn and I love having people over. Hospitality is a core value we were raised with in both of our families. And we knew, you know, really ever since we met that when we had our own home, we wanted it to have an open door. And we do several times a week have people pop in for coffee, a meal, sit around the fire pit, whatever. We really love being able to host our friends well. And actually, Glenn and I took a holiday at the start of this year and we drove back as in January. We drove back, pulled into the driveway. There were all these other cars at our house. I'm like, not sure what's happening here. And when we came into the house, there were five other people sitting around our kitchen table having lunch together, even though we weren't there. Like, they'd all popped in for different reasons. I guess they thought we might have come back in the morning or something. And one of them happened to have a key, so just let them all in. They were hanging out there having a great time. And we actually took it as the hugest compliment that we had hosted these people so welcomingly that they knew that they could come and hang out even if we weren't there. But can I tell you, our house is far from perfect. Glenn and I are always talking about the fact that we're renovating this house because it's like the bane of our existence. If anyone else here is renovated, you know what I'm talking about. We've been renovating this house for what feels like forever, but has actually been seven years. And there is always something unfinished, a pile of tools in the corner somewhere, rooms half under construction around us. Nothing's ever done. Nothing's perfect. But We've just determined not to let that stop us being the type of household that we want to be. And there are enough people in our lives who know they're welcome in amongst our mess. And you know, hosting the presence of God is a lot like hosting people. I know it's nice to be able to invite people to a recently cleaned house carefully prepared meal, the table's all laid out nicely. You get your best things on the table, but you can't sustain hospitality level hygiene forever, right? Once your dinner guests have gone, the nice things get washed and put away, and by breakfast the next day, if your house is like mine, there's junk mail and homework covering the table again. Life goes back to normal when a guest leaves. We had some people stay overnight recently. And you prepare differently for an overnight guest than just for a dinner guest, don't you? We wash the sheets, we put out fresh towels, we've only got three bedrooms in our house so the twins got kicked out of their room, they were on camping beds in with Wolfgang. And we tidied up the room, we cleaned the bathroom, we got extra food and it's a little bit more effort to have an overnight guest stay with you. But even then, after 30 hours or however long it was, it was time for them to go home. The sheets and towels got washed again. They went back in the cupboard. The twins were back in the room. Everything went back to normal. doesn't matter how long they stay. If someone's a guest when they leave, things go back to normal. But preparing for someone to live with you means making permanent changes. Can the parents in the room remember preparing for the birth of your first child? Yeah, it's so different than preparing for your second, isn't it? Um, but you prepare really carefully. 
you know, you get the room, they need a place to sleep, they need a place to play, you need somewhere to store their things. They take a permanent place in your household. And life is never the same again once that child comes home. You have to prepare permanent space for someone to move in with you. And you know what? Even though you might prepare that space perfectly and curate it so carefully that things just like the colours match, everything's just right, it's only a matter of time. If you are bringing a real live person into your real live house before they're there and there's a mess, right? Having someone live with you means that they live with you even when the house is messy. And there are some people here today, I know, you've been asking God to change something in your life. But your life's not changing because you haven't given God any room to move in it. I know what you might be thinking. I visit God every Sunday. A sure sign that you're only visiting God and that you're not really carrying that presence into your everyday life is if your everyday life isn't changing. Can I say it like this? If you want your life to change, you've got to stop inviting God for afternoon tea and start inviting him to move in with you. This whole series is about making this house of God, the church, our home, making it a place we're proud of. We want to make this place a welcoming place that reflects the love we have for the house's owner. But just today, just one out of the five messages, I'm inviting you to flip your thinking on this. Just as this is God's house and it's our home, could you think about your house also being God's home? Your home, as in your address, could also be God's house. Or how about this? Could anywhere you go become a temple? Because God is there. Could anyone who encounters you know what it is to encounter the power of Christ because he lives in you? But we're still fully human. I get it. We're not Jesus. We're not perfect. But he has invited us to live in this place of being increasingly filled with his Holy Spirit anyway. He doesn't care. I have one more scripture before I close. The band can come back up. Because we were never designed to be visitors to the presence of God. We were designed to live spirit-filled lives that are fruitful because we're always in connection with the Father. Jesus talks about this in John 15. He says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, he who lives in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Jesus invited us over and over to an understanding that he wants us to live with him and he wants to live in us. When we know that, we can make him room. Does your life include time and space for the Spirit of God to take a permanent place? I'm actually going to pray for you this morning. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand because I believe there's someone here today and you know your life is under construction. You might even use those words. And you've been thinking, one day, I'll invite Jesus to come and live with me, but my life's not ready yet. 
And I'm sure there are some young people here today who are like I once was. You're really good at visiting the presence of God on Sundays. You might even love God, but you haven't surrendered your life to Him yet. Let me tell you, you are never going to have His power in your everyday life until He has a place in it. All around this room today, there are people who God is calling to make Him room. Every one of you is a beautiful cathedral, whether you know it or not. What makes it true is that He wants to make you a house of God. You don't need soaring towers. You don't even need to be finished. I'm talking to the people in the room this morning who like to tidy up before the housekeeper comes. You don't need to do that for the Holy Spirit. Jesus already removed the judgment from your life. You just need to give him room. The same way we build this church environment, to be one that we can easily focus on him and hear his voice and visit with his presence, you can make environments in your everyday life where you can easily hear his voice and enter into a sense of his presence. Is it your car? Is it your bedroom? Is a certain time of the day that you know you're always going to have to yourself where you can just still all those other voices? and listen and invite the Holy Spirit to come and just walk with you that day. One of the things I often pray is, God, help me to be aware today that you are with me wherever I go. And in every situation, may I see what you are doing and partner with you. It's just inviting him in, helping, invite him to help you be aware that he is with you wherever you go. If that's you today and you want to move from visitation to celebration, to cohabitation, I'm going to pray for you right now. So if all over the room we can stand up, please, raise your hands as an act of faith because we're all inviting the Holy Spirit into our lives to dwell. But with every head bowed and eye closed, just so no one around the place is embarrassed, I'm going to pray for you. Lord, I pray for every person who is right now inviting you to live with them. And I release an anointing into this room right now for greater power and authority to be released into their homes. Father, for your voice to become clear to them. Lord, would you interrupt their every day and remind each one that you are going with them out of this place this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. To stay in touch with Encounter, follow us on Instagram at encounter.cc or find us on Facebook at encounter.shepparton.